Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. This episode is part of a new series I'm including with my author interviews. I speak with specialists and experts on various wars, where we summarize specific wars from start to finish, sometimes from the perspective of one side. I'll also post these episodes on YouTube at WarScholar1945 with maps and graphics. Thanks again for listening. I'm speaking with Professor Peter Kuznick, a specialist in the Cold War, and he will be talking to us about the Cold War from 1944 to 1960 from both the U.S. and Soviet perspectives. Thank you for speaking with me. Happy to be with you. So first, why do you start at 1944? Tell us what happened then. Well, actually, I'll start in 1942. I'm already correcting it. That's a revisionist historian. Got it. <laughs> in May of 1942, Roosevelt asked Stalin to send over Foreign Minister Molotov and a trusted general to Washington, D.C. Hmm. He met with them uh, and promised that the U.S. would open up the second front in Europe in before the end of 1942. Hmm. General Marshall, chief of staff, said the U.S. could do that. That was absolutely crucial to the Soviets and to Stalin because throughout most of World War II, what most Americans don't realize is that the U.S. was, and the U.S. and Britain were confronting 10 German divisions between us while the Soviets were confronting more than 200 German divisions. Hmm. What Stalin wanted more than anything was to take some of the pressure off by opening up Second Front in Europe. The United States, however, and even the Americans wanted to do this, but Churchill said that they weren't ready or able to do it. And so the Second Front got put off till June of 1944. And that delay was crucial. It gave the Soviets, who almost single-handedly defeated the Nazis, gave them time to turn the tide of the war in their favor and to be pursuing the Germans back over Central and Eastern Europe which the Soviets would later occupy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so uh, from the very beginning, uh, Roosevelt does not give up anything to Stalin at Yalta or in the earlier conferences that the Soviets didn't already control. So the uh, diplomatically, the United States was in a very weakened position because of not having opened up the Second Front and having a presence in Europe much, much earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's 1944. What also happens in 1944 is the Democratic Convention. On July 20th, 1944, the Democratic Party Convention began in steamy Chicago at the Chicago Stadium. Gallup released a poll on the eve of the convention, asking people who they wanted on the ticket as vice president. 65% of potential voters said they wanted Henry Wallace back on the ticket as vice president. 2% said they wanted Harry Truman on the ticket as vice president. Hmm. But the party bosses controlled the convention, and they managed to do it in such a way that the by the, the second and third ballots, the vote went for Harry Truman. Hmm. Had Wallace gotten the nomination, as he should have, then all of subsequent history would have been different. I'm convinced that if Wallace, who was very, very progressive, the most progressive politician in the United States during that time, had Wallace gotten the nomination, there would have been no 
atomic bomb in World War II, and there would have been no Cold War, certainly nothing along the lines that we've seen. Hmm. So we would not even have to have this conversation today wow. about early Cold War. Uh, but unfortunately, Harry Truman got the nomination. And Truman was a little man who was chosen, not because he was qualified, but because he didn't have any serious enemies. And all the other possible candidates seemed to have serious liabilities. So Truman was vice president for 82 days before Roosevelt died. During that time, he had met with Roosevelt twice. And Roosevelt never filled him in on the agreements at Yalta, Tehran, Casablanca, U.S.-British uh, relations, U.S.-Soviet relations. And in fact, one of the astounding things was that when Truman became president, got sworn in on April 12, 1945, nobody had even bothered to tell him that the United States was building an atomic bomb. Hmm. The most momentous thing in history, and nobody had enough regard for Truman to even let him in on the fact that we were building an atomic bomb. So Truman's in there, and he's in way over his head, and tells everybody he's in way over his head. And the British come there and meet with him and say he's a mediocrity with advisors who are Missouri courthouse-level advisors. I mean, nobody had regard for Truman during that time. But he's in a very difficult position because he's going to make some of the most momentous decisions in history in terms of the use of the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in terms of the relations with the Soviet Union and with Britain and other countries during that time. And so the Cold War gets off to a very bad start. While uh, Roosevelt's last mem memo that he sent to, his last cable that he sent to Churchill said that these issues between us and the Soviets come up all the time and they seem to always work themselves out and get resolved. We shouldn't make a big deal of them. Truman, on the other hand, had a different attitude. His first briefing on April 13th was by Jimmy Burns. And Burns told him, among other things, that the Soviets were breaking their agreements from Yalta. Satinius, the acting Secretary of State, told him the same thing. And so Truman, who had very little knowledge of his own on this, meets with Molotov on April 23rd. And at the meeting before that, the advisors went around and they had different opinions. Secretary of War Stimson said that the Soviets might have a much better understanding of their own security needs than we do. <laughs> General Marshall said we should not break with them in any way. They exceeded their promises rather than underdoing their promises. Uh, Leahy said that the Yalta agreement is so elastic, it can be stretched from Washington back to Yalta and back again without ever being broken. Uh, but Truman goes in that meeting with Molotov and starts berating him and accusing the Soviets of having broken their Yalta agreements, especially over Poland and to some extent over Germany. Mm. And Molotov is appalled. And he says, I've never been talked to that way in my life. And Truman says, well, to carry out your agreements, you won't have to be talked to that way. Truman went out and bragged. He said, I gave it to him one, two to the jaw. In the meeting beforehand, Truman said, we might not get 100% of what we want, but we should get 85%. So right from the beginning, U.S.-Soviet relations are getting off to a very, very bad start. Mm -hmm. Situation gets exacerbated greatly when the U.S. drops the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. What you have to understand about that is that the Japanese had decided that the best way for them to get better surrender terms was to ask the Soviets to intercede on their behalf. And the, and the Japanese had done that. And Ambassador Foreign Minister... Uh, former Prime Minister Hirota, Koki Hirota, 
met in Moscow with the Japanese, with the Soviet ambassador Malik, and Malik writes back to the Kremlin in early June that the Japanese are desperate to surrender. So the the, what, what, the point I'm going to make briefly that I sometimes make at greater depth mm -hmm. was that the uh, the real target of the atomic bomb was not Japan. The real target was the Soviet Union, which mm -hmm. is exactly how the Soviets interpreted it. Uh, the, the Japanese were already trying to surrender. Truman himself says that he refers to the intercepted July 18th cable for the Japanese as the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. Mm. He says uh, he had lunch with Stalin at Potsdam on July 17th, and he writes in his journal, uh, the Russians are coming in, the, uh, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th, finny Japs when that occurs. Uh, he writes home to his wife, Bess, the next day, the Russians are coming in, we'll end the war a year sooner now, think of all the kids who won't be killed. Mm. What, what the Soviets understood was that there was no possible military need for the United States to drop atomic bombs on a Japanese government that was desperate to surrender. And so when the U.S. does drop the bomb, the Soviet leaders in the Kremlin interpret this as if this was a warning to the Soviets. If they mess with U.S. plans in Europe or the Pacific, this is what they're going to get and worse, hmm. much, much worse. So the relations are being poisoned already by in 1945. And the situation is only going to get worse because the U.S. exercises what we call atomic diplomacy, which means with Burns going to the foreign minister's meeting with the atomic bomb ostentatiously in his hip pocket uh, and the Molotov making fun of him and saying, we're not going to be intimidated by your threats to us. I mean, the situation devolves very, very quickly. Henry Wallace stayed on in the cabinet uh, as Secretary of Commerce. <laughs> and from that position for the year, more than a year until September of 1946, he wages an internal battle against the Cold War and the nuclear arms race. And he has a lot of allies in that period. Uh, but he finally gets ousted by Truman on September 21st, 1946. He was the last of the old New Dealers to survive up to that point. But when we're thinking about the Cold War, I like to tell my students and others about uh, George Kennan's secret memo, top secret memo mm -hmm. of 1948 where he really lays out what the Cold War is about. And he says, I'll read you a tiny bit of it. He says, sure. we have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. We cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreamings. We should cease to talk about vague and unreal objectives, such as human rights, the raising of the living standards, and democratization. We're going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are hampered by idealistic slogans, the better. And what we're going to see over this next period is the U.S. trying to assert its hegemony, mm -hmm. trying to maintain this position of disparity, uh, and uh, the deal in cold power politics around the globe. And this is going to continue throughout the Cold War, uh, but uh, we can certainly get into it in more detail on the late 40s and 50s. Yeah, so um, I guess the first situation, conflict situation I'm thinking about uh, is Korea. Does that fall under the Cold War in a sense, or is that sort of a separate subject? It does fall under the Cold War, but the first conflict is actually over Iran, 
1946, okay. when the Soviets were a little bit slow to pull out of Iran, and Truman bragged later to Scoop Jackson that he threatened that if they didn't get out of there, they were going to drop atomic bombs on them. And this is a time when the Washington Post and lots of others are saying, well, the Soviets certainly have as much uh, of a case to make for access to Iranian oil as the British do, who are controlling it from thousands of miles away. And this was on, on the Russia's border. So but that's the first of the conflicts. Then there's the Truman Doctrine, then the Marshall Plan, then the Berlin Crisis. But what happens in 1949 is very crucial. Two things really happen. The first is uh, the Chinese Revolution. So we have a communist revolution in China led by Mao, Mao Zedong. The second is that the Soviets test their own atomic bomb in August of 1949. Those two things are going to change the balance of powers and forces. And then there is the Korean War, which was started by the North Koreans with the go-ahead by Stalin because they thought that the South was about to attack them. And this had been border skirmishes going back and forth for a long time. Uh, but that is a very major turning point in the Cold War. Then especially when the, when the Chinese come in and just overwhelm the American army, General Black Bradley says this is the darkest day in the history of the American military. And the Americans were set back on their ear and retreated uh, down uh, to South Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that is important. It's also important because the United States threatens to use nuclear weapons. And Eisenhower especially makes those threats. But even Truman says that all, everything is on the table. So Truman considered it. Eisenhower was much more open to using nuclear weapons, which is ironic in the sense, of course, because Eisenhower is the one U.S. president who has criticized the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hmm. But when he became president, he had already changed. And it's actually under Eisenhower, a very important point that people don't realize. When Eisenhower took office, the U.S. had approximately a little more than a thousand nuclear weapons. When Eisenhower left office, the U.S. had more than 22,000 nuclear weapons. When Eisenhower's budgeting cycle was finished, the U.S. had 30,000 nuclear weapons. Eisenhower warns about the military-industrial complex in his uh, farewell address because he knows about it because he created it. When Eisenhower took office, the, will, the U.S. nuclear weapons were in civilian hands. Very soon thereafter, he puts them in military hands so they'd be much more readily usable. When Eisenhower took office, there was one finger on the nuclear button. When Eisenhower leaves office, there are dozens of fingers on the nuclear button because of his policy of delegation and subdelegation. So when Dan Ellsberg, working for George Bundy, asked the Pentagon, uh, how many people would be killed in a nuclear war uh, very quickly based on the U.S. use of nuclear weapons, uh, he was told approximately more between 600 million and 650 million from America's weapons, not, not British weapons or French weapons or uh, Soviet weapons. And the reality is, of course, that because of nuclear winter, probably pretty much everybody on the planet would have been killed in the event of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. So from the Soviet side, you mentioned they built their own atomic uh, weapons. Um, yes. What what other Soviet responses, apart from you know participating uh, in the Korean War um, and then onwards, uh, what, what were their responses and, and activities? 
Well, the Soviets very much wanted and needed a friend, a positive relationship with the U.S. after the war. As what we know is that the U.S. lost about 300,000 in combat and maybe a little more than 400,000 in total. Mm -hmm. The Soviets lost 27 million in World War II. As, as I explained to my students what that means, that's the numerically the equivalent of one 9-11 a day every day for 24 years hmm. is what Soviets lost in World War II. As President Kennedy said, it's the equivalent of the entire United States east of Chicago being wiped out. So what the Soviets were desperate for was peace, stability, and economic aid. And Roosevelt had floated the reparations figure of uh, $20 million with uh, half of that going to Russia. So that's what the Soviets really were concerned about. They wanted to maintain friendly relations with the U.S. They wanted debt relief. They wanted reparations. They wanted economic aid to rebuild after the war. Uh, the, the, the U.S. and the Soviets have very different conceptions of what was needed for their security. The Soviets defined security in terms of territory, in terms of space. They had been invaded through Eastern Europe by the Germans twice in the past 25 years. And so they were desperate for a buffer zone in Eastern Europe between themselves and Germany, which they expected to rise up again at some point. The United States wanted international treaties, United Nations, uh, economic access to the labor resources and markets in all over the world, including Eastern Europe. Uh, so we had very different conceptions, and the conceptions banged up against each other during this period. So the Soviets still tried to maintain friendly relations through 1946 and 1947. But after the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, then, the, then what the Soviets initially had tolerated friendly governments in Eastern Europe. They didn't want socialist governments or communist governments or lockstep allies. They just wanted friendly governments. But by 47, after the U.S. takes this hard line, uh, the Soviets then crack down. First, they crack down in Hungary and in Poland and other countries and, and Czechoslovakia. And so then we see the changes taking place. And the Cold War from that point on is going to be fought out in very, very different terms. So from 53 to 1960, um, what significant events happened with the Cold War? It seems that much of it was centered perhaps around the um, the independence movements in the Far East. There were a few, you know, a few of them. I can't recall everything that was going on, but I think the British were dealing with issues in, in Malaysia and then, of course, French and Indochina. Yeah, if you could uh, talk about that, that period. So this is a period when the U.S. position in the region is going to be threatened. We've got the um, the Viet Minh rising up in Indochina. We've got the Hucks in the Philippines. We've got resistance movements and anti-colonial movements in other parts of uh, Asia during this time. And the U.S. has become the leading counter-revolutionary status quo force. So in 1950, the U.S. takes over from the French in the arming and support of the Pol Pot regime in Vietnam. Uh, and then the U.S. involvement in Vietnam gets greater and greater. When the French are defeated at the NBN Phu in 54 and forced to flee, 
the U.S. takes over. First, the U.S. had offered the French the use of three atomic bombs if they thought that that was going to make the difference and allow them to stay in, in Vietnam. But the French rejected that, fortunately. Uh, but then in 54, the Geneva Agreement, uh, the United States breaks that. The reason why the Vietnamese accepted the Geneva Agreement rather than all-out victory is because the U.S. promised that there would be elections to unify Vietnam within two years. Eisenhower writes in his memoirs, he says that every expert I talked to said the communists would win at least 80% of the vote if the election was held across Vietnam. So what does the United States do? We sabotage that. Now you have to remember that we've got, in addition to Eisenhower, who sometimes seemed like a reasonable statesman, although not always, you also had Alan Dulles running the CIA and John Foster Dulles running the State Department. So we had some very, very extreme hardline uh, anti-communists who are very aggressive in their Cold War policies. So Indochina is one thing. Uh, China itself is another. Uh, but this is also happening beyond that. And so we're going to see a lot of confrontations. But one of the key developments early on, March 5th, 1953, Stalin dies. That creates a possibility. Eisenhower's advisors are telling him that that this opens the door. Malenkov and the other Soviet leaders held out an olive branch to the United States, basically said, this is our opportunity to end the Cold War, to re reduce the hostilities between us. And after six weeks of silence, Eisenhower makes a terrific speech, one of his most progressive speeches, in which he says, talks about what the cost of one new bomber is this many schoolhouses. He goes through how much money we're wasting. He says that humanity should not be uh, sacrificed on a cross of iron in terms of America's defense spending. Eisenhower, interestingly, was what he was most afraid of was that the U.S., because of his bloated military budget, because with NSC 68, which was approved with the start of the Korean War, uh, the United States quadruples its military spending. Eisenhower thought we were going to go broke as a nation. Mm. That's part of his rationale for building up the nuclear arsenal, because that was much cheaper than conventional forces. Mm. Uh, so and that's what Eisenhower expresses in this speech. And the, the Soviets were ecstatic, and they reprinted this all over, all over the Soviet Union. But two days later, Dulles makes a speech which contradicts everything that Eisenhower said and effectively uh, accuses the Soviets of aggression all over the world and that whatever positive momentum was possible at that point was undermined by Dulles. Uh, there wasn't really that much space between them in general but certainly very, very different tone at that crucial moment when we could have prevented the Cold War from, we could have ended the Cold War at that point. Mm -hmm. Now, um, did something happen in 1960 um, that you wanted to uh, end end your discussion with that year or something around that time? Uh, well, the, one of the big developments is after the Suez crisis in 1957, mm -hmm. the Soviets launched the first space satellite, Sputnik. Uh, which means to Americans that the Soviets 
we knew they had ICBMs before we did, uh, the satellite before we did, and it meant we thought it meant that they had missiles that could hit the United States with nuclear weapons. And so that sends the United States into a frenzy. And many people are saying that the U.S. has lost its advantage. In, around the world, the U.S. had been mocking the Soviet Union before that, saying they couldn't even build a tractor. Hmm. Now, now they've built a tractor, they've actually launched the first satellite into space. Eisenhower downplayed it, said, oh, it was one small ball. But then the Soviets soon thereafter launched a second satellite, Sputnik 2, and that is enormous. I think two tons or something enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then nobody can ignore the Soviet advantage and kind of and thrust capability. Uh, and so what we're seeing there is uh, the beginnings of the Soviet Union being able to compete with the United States. The big cr- crucial turning point, of course, comes in 62 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. But that's a topic for another day. Okay. Um, well, where can people, t- well, first tell me, um, some of the books you've written and, um, and then where can people find you online? Uh, my first book was Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America. Uh, then, uh, Rethinking Cold War Culture. Then, uh, The Untold History of the United States, which was a series of books and a 12-part documentary series that I did with filmmaker Oliver Stone. Mm. And that, that is up on Netflix for anybody who wants to watch it. The book is available in the big book, which is now 900 pages, the new edition, more than 900 pages. But there's also the original book. There's the, the concise untold history of the United States based on the documentary scripts. There are two volumes of our Young Readers book, uh, and there will be two more coming on that. And the graphic novel, which will be out hopefully later this year, if not early next year. So, um, and then a, a series of books in Japan. My most recent one was based on conversations that Oliver Stone and I had with former Japanese Prime Minister Hatoyama. Uh, and that one just came out very, very recently this year uh, about the global situation and what should be done about that. So a lot of, lot of books, and people can find me through American University. My website is up there. That was quite a few, few years out of date. Hmm. Go on the web. I do a couple hundred interviews a year with international press, and a lot of those I know are available. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm out there at present hmm. and giving lots of talks uh, and lots of interviews and writing lots of articles. So it should be easy to track down. And I'll spell your name for listeners. It's uh, Peter, and then Kuznick is K-U-Z-N-I-C-K. Yes, that's right. All right. Well, um, I thank you very much for speaking with me about uh, the Cold War from 1944 to 1960. Glad to do it, Chris. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.